Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. We're, uh, we're starting a look in a journey through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, it's going to be really clear. You could actually divide the, the book of Mark up into two sections. And uh, in those two sections, you can see uh, Mark demonstrate the, the uh, authority and the divinity and the, uh, the wisdom and the, and the servanthood and the man that Jesus was. And in the second half, you can see the call to follow him as he gave his life for us. And we'll define that and look at that a little bit further as the weeks come. But today, I just want to start by getting us a little bit adjusted to the book. Uh, I'm going to end the, the day with a challenge for all of us, and we're going to call it the Mark Challenge. And, uh, but let's just explore and unpack and look a little bit at this amazing book. Some have said it's the most translated book of the Bible. So the Bible itself is the most translated and copied and reproduced book of all times. And some have said that the book of Mark, the, the gospel account of Mark, is the most translated individual book of the Bible. And so it's, uh, it's interesting that we're going to take a look at this because it's full, it's packed. It's, it is written to Gentiles, and it's written to the non-Jew, and it's written to be concise and quick and to the point. And we're going to take a look at it. So let's take a look first and foremost at the author. The author is a, a man by the name of John Mark. And uh, from the earliest of days of the Christian era, uh, the, the gospel has been attributed to John Mark. This particular gospel has been attributed to John Mark. And he's mentioned in Acts and several other epistles. Now, the, the nuance here is that it never is his name actually written in the book of Mark. And so we're going off tradition. It's never been refuted. It's never been, uh, you know, I mean, some people have tried to, but it's been the consensus of the whole history of our faith that John Mark has been the author of this book. And he wasn't a disciple. He was not a disciple, but he was a dear friend of, of, uh, of Peter. He was a nephew of Barnabas, and he was a friend and companion with Paul. We get introduced to John Mark in Acts chapter 12, and we meet him and his mother, and his mother's name is Mary. They lived in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' resurrection. And here's where we pick up and find them introduced for the very first time. When this had dawned on him, him being Peter, after he was miraculously released from prison, remember he was put in jail for declaring the gospel, the angels came in the middle of the night, woke him up and said, hey, it's time to go, you're being set free. And literally he walks out amongst the guards and the guards don't even see him. And he walks out and he, the angels lead him to freedom. And they've said, now go and continue. Go and continue the ministry of declaring the gospel of Christ. And the very first things he does, he runs to the church that's been praying for him. We find in Acts chapter 12, same chapter, up in verse 5, that the church had gathered. When they heard the news of what happened to Peter, the church gathered to pray. Church, there's power in our prayer. There's power in our prayer. And then Peter knew exactly where to go. He went to the gathering of the saints. He went to the gathering of the people of Christ. And that's where this part of the story picks up. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, 
where many people had gathered and were praying. Mary was, a, a, was a, evidently a, a woman of, of, of resource, a, of money, of prestige, because she had her own house, and it was a house big enough that the church at that time could meet in it. It was a house that they could gather, and they could all pray together, and they could worship together, and they could hear teaching uh, about Jesus and how they were supposed to follow him. But we also find that Mary most likely was a widow because to, dis- to uh, ascribe her household to her would mean that she didn't have a husband and most likely, again, like I said, widowed. And it stands to reason from that that John Mark himself was also quite wealthy and a man of prestige himself. And so um, that'll come into play just a minute. It's why I draw it out. In Colossians 4.10, we're told that Mark, like I said a minute ago, was the, uh, was the, the either the cousin or the nephew of Barnabas. And uh, John Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But he ended up deserting them. And that's kind of where the story, most people pick up the story of John Mark and what we know about him is literally they were on this they were on this journey. They were missionaries going from town to town. And John Mark literally left Barnabas and Paul and went back to, uh, to his other duties. As a result of Mark's inexcusable failure, Paul refused to take him on a subsequent trip. He said, no, I'm not taking him. He's not mature enough. He's not ready for this. It's not, I'm not taking him. He deserted us. Paul was so fixed on proclaiming the gospel Paul was so focused on proclaiming the gospel that he didn't want one hindrance. He didn't want one hiccup. He didn't want one distraction besides proclaiming the gospel. And if, Mark, if John Mark had once been a distraction, then twice he'd be a distraction as well. Well, Barnabas was having nothing to do with it. Barnabas was saying, we're taking him. We're taking him. Barnabas, which actually means encourager, is like, we're taking him. We'll be encouraging him along the way. We'll be pushing him forward where we can do this. And then there was a division and a divide. Paul went on without Barnabas, and Barnabas and John Mark went on without him. And as far as we know, the two didn't come back together for another missionary journey. Now, we're not, we don't know that for a fact in the sense that they didn't travel anywhere together, but we know that he's not on the, the missionary journeys that are ascribed to him as, as Acts continues to unfold. And even though he had betrayed Paul's trust on the first missionary journey, John Mark later became a valued member of the Apostles' ministry team. We don't necessarily know how that took, happened or how that came about, but in Colossians 4, 10 and 11, Paul instructed his readers to welcome Mark as one of the fellow workers for the kingdom who had proven, listen to this, to be an encouragement to him during his imprisonment in Rome. And some years later, near the end of his life, Paul asked Timothy to pick up Mark on the way to see him. To pick up Mark on the way to see him and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. And then finally, we see Peter mentioning him in 1 Peter 5.13, referring him to him with great affection and as his son. As his son. While Mark is not named in the gospel as the author, there are two passages in Mark's gospel that might possibly refer to him. Now, this, is, this begins to be speculation about Mark and about the author, but there's several things that lead, have led scholars throughout, the, throughout time and history to kind of think maybe these two passages are actually talking about John Mark. Maybe these are pictures of him. 
because of the way they're described in such a personal fashion, because of some of the words that are used, and because they're only recorded in the manner in which they are in his gospel and not the others. Let me draw your attention to those. In Mark 14, 51 to 52, Jesus has been arrested by the angry mob. The disciples are all fleeing. And only Mark records this section or this small passage. And it says, And a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him. But he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. Now, where, where does that story come from? It wasn't any of the Gospels. It's just suddenly there. That's a very unique, that's a very independent, that's a very personal story of something that took place. Could it be? Could it be that it was Mark? And well, We don't know, but it's possible. And it's that he was attracted to Jesus. He followed him into the garden. But like Peter and all the others, feared the crowd and ran away, even to be publicly shamed with his nakedness. We don't know, but it could be. And the other passage is found in Mark 10. And again, this one might also be a stretch, but commentators have speculated that that the uh, young man in this story is potentially John Mark. Remember, he was most likely a man of wealth. And, uh, and it says this, all three Gospels include the story of the rich young ruler. But Mark's account is distinct in a number of ways. You remember that story, and we're going to read it here, but the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus, it's in all three accounts. But listen to the one in Mark. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal, eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Matthew begins the account. One came to him and said, Luke simply says, a certain ruler questioned him. Let's go back to the beginning of Mark. And he was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him. There's a, there's a personal touch in there. There's a, a more vivid picture. There's a, could be a special account of something that he knew himself very well. And verse 21 provides another detail that's not in any of the other accounts. It says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Jesus felt a love for him, and only Mark writes that down. I wonder, I wonder if it took the man who looked into the eyes of Jesus at the moment that Jesus said, leave everything. And he knowing in his heart that his great God was his wealth and his possessions, that the greatest thing he had in his life was that which is physically present, and he wasn't willing to give it up. Look at the love of Christ saying, just Follow me, and you will have the life you've always wanted. The love of a father saying, come to me. 
I wonder if it took a man to look into his eyes to see that, to feel that, to write it down in his gospel. We don't know. We're not 100% sure. But what does it matter? I told you some details about John Mark. I told you some things. He's, he failed Paul. He failed on his journey. He, he failed potentially at the, at the garden and ran away. He failed potentially as he came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? And he said, just follow me. He had these failures in his life. And why do I bring all that up as we just talk about the author? I could have just said, John Mark wrote it. We see him in the book of Acts. Go read about him. Great guy. Eh, a few mistakes. Why? Because of this. The failure to obey Jesus' command to sell is good. The failure at the Garden of Gethsemane. The failure on the first missionary journey. God didn't give up on them. God didn't give up on them. And so often we see our failures as final. So often we see our failures when we have turned our back or denied or, or, or didn't move as Christ would, share us, would want us to move or didn't surrender as Christ wants us to surrender. When he held out this life that we could have had at any moment, at any time, and we said, no, not right now. Or it made it really clear what we were supposed to do or there was somebody we were supposed to love and walk alongside of and we failed. And so often we deem that failure as final. And this is an amazing, brilliant story. This is a, an amazing story of a man who failure was not final because it was wrapped up in Jesus Christ who continues to pour out grace and continues to lavish love upon love. Remember we read from 1 John that he continues to lavish his love out in the form of mercy and grace and it covers us and that there is still an ultimate plan and there is still things for us to do. And the Lord is taking all of our mistakes and all of our missteps and all of our disobedience and he's wrapping it up and he's transforming us into what? Into his likeness. He's using it to teach us about what our life can be like. He's using it to build us up. He's using it in our lives to bring about us being the son or daughter that he wants us to be. I mean, he ends up becoming a fellow worker to Paul, the one who said, I'm not taking you. He becomes a dear son and, and, and scribe to Peter. If anyone understood the process of restoration after failure, wouldn't it be Peter? It makes sense that Peter then disciples him and nurtures him and mentors him. And it makes sense that he tells him all the amazing stories and, and intimate detail of what Jesus did and what he said. And he encouraged him along the way. And can you just see, can, can you see Mark just blazing it down? Whoa, I got to write that story down. I got to write that story down. And oh, that's, that's me right there. I'll bet Jesus would have said that to me if I was walking with him, if I would have taken him up on his offer to follow him. But I didn't. And now his heart's being transformed and is being renewed. And he can't wait to get the story out. And he becomes the author of the most translated gospel in all the world. And his words that he wrote down have had an impact for over 2,000 years. My, my brothers and sisters, how will God use you? There's no failure in your life that's final. God's always writing a new story and a new chapter in your life. He always has a plan for you. But then there's something else. Who do you need to be a Peter to? Who's a John Mark in your life that's experienced some failure, some setbacks, and they need you, Peter, to step up and say, I know all about that. 
I know all about not walking the way of the Savior. Not walking in the shoes of the servant king. I know all about that. And he heals me and he restores me and I, I want to help you. I want to encourage you. I'm sure there's somebody in your life, a, a John Mark in your life, that could use you to walk alongside of him. Let's get on to a couple of details about the book of Mark. Let's talk about its uniqueness. It's simplistic, it's dramatic, and it's personal. Mark was written for the Gentile believers of Rome. Mark's audience was non-Jewish, and it, which provides, uh, and we, we understand this because he provides explanations to Jewish customs. He omits, uh, he omits things that would really interest a Jewish reader, like genealogies, and, and uh, he doesn't record too many Old Testament passages, which the Jew, uh, a Jewish reader would have wanted to hear. And he uh, also calculates time according to the Roman system instead of the Jewish system. So he is clearly moving this gospel towards the Gentiles. He's moving this gospel as something that they can understand, relate to. The fact that Mark wrote to, uh, wrote to the Romans, uh, it, it helps us to understand his style and approach. You see, this gospel emphasizes activity over learning, activity over teaching. Mark describes Jesus as he busily moves from place to place and meets the physical needs of all kinds of people. Uh, one of Mark's favorite words is straight away, which means immediately. He's, he uses it over 41 times. It's like he's fast-forwarding the story, and immediately, and immediately. He's moving from story to story, and it's quick, and it's quick, and it's quick, and it's quick. And in fact, sometimes he even does the sandwich approach where he sandwiches a couple different stories, even out of chronological order, together in order to get the point across that he's trying to get across. So it's not a book that's written in chronological order. It's a book that's written to tell the story of Jesus Christ in the best possible way. It's to tell the actions and so that we can see what Christ did and it comes alive for us and we can be encouraged by it and challenged by it and we can understand what it's going to mean. We spent the last three weeks talking about being sons and daughters. We can understand how a son or a daughter will live because we can look at the actions and the reactions of Jesus, the Son of God. And so it's written for that, uh, for that message. It... Uh, Mark, does, uh, Mark doesn't record many of the Lord's sermons. Now, and I make no mistake, he unquestionably refers to Jesus as the authoritative teacher. But the content of those teachings are much more concise as Mark emphasizes, emphasizes more on what Jesus did rather than what he taught. He reveals Jesus to be God's servant sent to minister to a suffering people and to die for the sins of the world. Hmm. Did you catch that last part? You see, he's declaring him to be deity. And we're going to see in a second that he declares him to be deity and that he has humanity and he has authority. But he brings to light and drives home that this is no ordinary king. This is a servant king. And he is on a one purpose mission to give his life for us, to give his life for the sins of the world. Everything shows him to be a servant and a servant and a servant. He paints some vivid pictures more vividly than Mark and, and Matthew. It's, a, it's personal detail. It's a word pictures that help us to interact with Jesus and feel an affection and emotion. It draws out the emotion in us even as the facts are, are quite concise. 
Uh, let me give you a couple examples. And both Matthew and Mark tell of Jesus taking on a little child and uh, taking the, the little child and setting him in the midst. They literally talk about a child and he gets set in the midst of the crowd. Mark describes it like this. He adds that, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, he gives us that just extra picture of Jesus, right? It wasn't that Jesus put him in the midst. It wasn't just Jesus taught about the children and their faith. What did he do? He took the child in his arms. Now we get this picture of a loving Jesus who embraces, not just teaches, but embraces while he teaches. Parents, that's something for us to really cling to, is it not? In another story of Jesus and the children, when Jesus rebuked the disciples for keeping the children from him, only Mark finishes with, and he took them up in his arms and laid hands on them and blessed them. So not only did he rebuke the disciples for not, for not taking time with the children, he then demonstrated, this is how you love a child. And he drew them up in his arms, and then he blessed them. Instead of sending them away, offer them blessing. Instead of sending them away, build them up. Instead of sending them away, give them your time and your attention and your affection and your teaching. And your greatest resource of all, time. Give it to him. When Mark tells the story of feeding the 5,000, he alone tells how they sat down in hundreds and in fifties. Bringing the scene to light, it wasn't just this massive crowd. They were actually organized by family and tribe. They were organized by how they lived. They were organized by in community. And so it's as if we can look over the, the, the crowd, we can look over the mountain edge there and see them all lined up. Some have said, I'll bet it looked a little bit like a garden as the disciples went through and fed all the different people. And then we see that Jesus, when Jesus and his disciples were on their last journey to Jerusalem, Mark tells us that Jesus was walking ahead of them. The small little phrase that if we're careful with it, it depicts the loneliness of Jesus. The loneliness of Jesus as he marched to his death. The servant, the king, the servant king, always serving us. Now, there's a priority to Mark's gospel account. And let's dig into that real fast because we don't want to miss it. There's a priority. He sets out to declare Jesus as the divine king, right? We don't want to miss that. And in all these human pictures that he gives us, and all this personal illustration that he gives us and all of this intimate, quick, concise detail that just explodes open for us. We don't want to miss the fact that he made painstaking efforts throughout the entire gospel to let us know that this was the living God in the flesh. And he did it by explaining his authority and demonstrating his authority. So Jesus had uh, the authority of his teaching. In Mark 1, 21 through 22, it says, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to preach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Literally, that meant as one who was speaking from the Lord or of the Lord and could speak new truth and could speak new law. That was the authority. Jesus was truly divine. He was truly God in the flesh. The authority over the authority of Jesus over the spiritual realm. In Mark 1, 23 through 27, I'm sorry, I messed you up there, Kevin. Let me jump back one here. The authority of Jesus over nature. In Mark 3, 39 through 41, it says that he got up, rebuked the winds, and said to the waves, quiet, 
be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. He had authority over nature. Then he had authority over the spiritual realm. In Mark 1, 23 through 27, it says, Then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. All the people were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching with, with, and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. The spirits of the spiritual realm, the demons, the spirits that seek to draw us away from the Father, the, that seek to ravish our lives, he has authority over them. They must follow his command because he is the God on high. The authority of Jesus over salvation, Mark 10, 24 through 27. It says, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible with God. And, and look what he's doing right there. He's drawing all the attention back to the God. He's drawing all the attention back to the Father. He, what he's saying is that by, remember, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to work themselves into salvation. He goes, you can't. You can't do it. I'm the authority of salvation. Let me tell you exactly how it happens. You surrender your life and you trust God for through him and what he's about to do in my life. For you, you will be able to find salvation. He had authority over salvation. He was truly God in the flesh. The priority of Mark was to demonstrate the humanity of Jesus. I'm just going to read these. Jesus experienced hunger. He's just like you and I. I wonder if he had, if he ever got a little cranky when he was hungry. He was hungry. He had desires and he had fleshly desires and, and he had a body that worked just like ours. We can relate to every part of his life and every detail of his life. He, he had compassion, which literally meant he meant to, he suffered with. Now, it's one thing to say God cares, but he literally came and suffered as a human being. He suffered with those who were around him, not just suffered for all of us on the cross, but he had compassion on the people he saw and walked with them in the hard and difficult times of their life. He was moved. And then Jesus was also amazed. He himself, yes, God, fully God, was also fully man, and he was even in amaze. There were things that were hidden from him as well as he walked among the earth, and he was amazed at people's responses. Jesus said to them in Mark 6, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Exciting things amazed him. People following him amazed him. And that lack of faith and trust amazed him that here I am, the God of the universe, standing in front of you, and you still lack so much faith. You still lack faith. He was amazed by it. He had emotions. He had understandings. He had to grapple with different things that he saw. Now, 
We've talked about it a minute ago, but the priority of Mark's gospel is also not just to define Jesus as the, as, a, as the king, the divine king, and to show us his humanity, but it was also shown as the servant king. In Mark 8, 27 through 29, it really hinges. There's this part that changes here. Jesus and the disciples went on to the villages of Caesarea and Philippi, and on the way there, who do people say I am, they replied. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Literally meaning you are the Christ. You are the king. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the savior of the world. Right there, declared. And it's like this pivotal moment that all of heaven kind of stops. All of earth stops. And right here, he is the king. But the king that came to give his life as a ransom for many. We find in Mark 10 that he says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came not just as a king, not as a warring king for sure, not just as deity, he was fully, and not just as a human, he was completely, but as a servant. In every part of his life, he was a servant. And we're going to watch that be unpacked because here is the final message of the book of Mark. We must surrender and follow the servant king. Mark 8, 34 through 35. Then he called to the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life must lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's the final priority of the gospel of Mark. We too must give up our lives. Mark is laying this incredible picture. He's displaying in vivid color who Jesus was and what he did. And that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the human of all humans, right? The, the sacrificial lamb came to give his life on our behalf. Why? Because he was a servant. And he served out of love for you and I, and that we are to follow him and to pick up our cross. This was written to the Romans. And so when, when Mark wrote down, pick up your cross, when Jesus said those words and Mark wrote them down, do you have any idea what that means? It means literally to the Romans who watched crucifixions day in and day out for you do something wrong, you're crucified. To pick up your cross literally means to die to yourself, to die to all that you are and begin to follow Christ and become all that he seeks for you to be. And I realized that's such an interesting, such a difficult concept for us to go, what does that actually mean? Let me introduce you to a, a gentleman by the name of Bill. Now, I wish he could be here today, but he's got his own church and his church is in Pittsburgh. And, uh, it's a pretty cool church. We got to visit it this week. And while I was there, I jumped into their, to their little store. Their little, you know, they sell merchandise and Bibles and coffee. And there was Bill just standing there making coffee. And I'm like, hey, how you doing? He goes, good. And we start to talk a little bit. I said, how long have you gone to this church? He goes, eight years. I'm like, eight years, that's great. I go, what do you think? He goes, oh, it's the best church ever. I'm like, sure seems like a great church. I go, how would you start coming to this church? He goes, oh, I'm glad you asked, because I love to tell a story. I said, really? And he said, he said here's, here's what happened. My, 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 my daughter started dating this guy, and this guy's mom went to this church. 
I'm Catholic. And so my daughter says, hey, can I go to church with my boyfriend and his family? Well, I said, I don't know. It's the same Jesus, the same God that we have? She goes, pretty sure. He said, okay. So he went and she came back and she's like, dad, you got to go. Every problem you've ever had with church, everything you've ever talked about, they're not it. Like they fixed it. You got to come. And he said, ah, no, 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 no. He said, it'd been a long time since he'd been, even been to a Catholic church. Oh, no, no, I'm okay. And he sat after a few weeks of her continuing to ask and ask and ask. And he sat and he said, you know what? I would do anything for my daughter. I would go anywhere for her. Why won't I go to church? And so he decided to go. And he said, Tim, I, all I did, I just sat there and I bawled like a baby. I met the real Jesus that day. I understood who it was. I saw this incredible picture of the things he did. <laughs> I wonder if they were reading the book of Mark. I, I saw him just love. And I knew that he loved me. And I walked out there and I couldn't stop crying. And I'm telling you, Tim, I'm telling you the truth. For the last eight years, every day that the doors of this church have been open, I've been here. And I said, I believe it, man. And he said, but there's more. There's more to my story. He said, just a couple months after that, he goes, I, I, he goes, I don't know really how to describe it to you, but basically my, my, my intestine and my colon and stuff, they just sort of started to tear apart. And I got rushed to the hospital, and they said that uh, if you don't have surgery right now, you're going to die. He was like, I, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I'm thinking, shouldn't she have surgery? And he goes, so I sent everybody out of my room. This whole thing of praying to God and this whole thing of, of trusting him was so new to me. And he goes, so here's what I did. He goes, I, I just stood in the middle of my room and literally, I promise you, no exaggeration, this is exactly, we're standing in the middle of this coffee house bookstore, a little corner of a church, and he's describing it just like this. He goes, and with everybody out of my room, I stood in the middle of my room, and with my hands like this, I said, Jesus, my life is yours. Do with it whatever you want. If today I die, then take my life. If tomorrow I live, I live for you. I said, prayed that prayer. And that day I gave my life completely. And I said, I'm going to follow you wherever it goes. If it goes to death, then I'm yours. If it goes to life, then I'm living for you. And he invited everybody back in and he had pronounced to the doctors, I'm not having the surgery. They're like, you will die. He goes, then so be it. But I gave my life to the Lord and it's up to him. And his family's ticked off at him and everybody's mad. And one day goes by and two days go by and three days go by and 13 days go by and they release him from the hospital. Yeah, they release him from the hospital. The story's not over. About two months later, he starts to have pains and things again. And he goes to a specialist this time. And the specialist, tell me what happened. And he tells the story and blah, 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 blah. He goes, well, I, that doesn't make any sense to me. Why didn't you have the surgery? I understand all that took place, but why didn't you have the surgery? And he goes, well, uh, because I gave my life to Christ that day, and I said, if you want me to live, I'll live. If you want me to die, I'll die, and I'm going to trust you with my life, and this will be my first act of trust. And he goes, okay, because let me tell you something. Based on what's going on in your body right now, your body was absolutely septic. It was full of poison. If they would have opened you up the way they wanted to open you up, you would have died the moment they opened you up. You not having that surgery actually saved your life. 
And so the next day they did a laparoscopic surgery and it lasted a, just a short amount of time and they fixed the thing that needed to be fixed and he's been fine ever since. Lord, I'm yours. That's not a prayer in a seat. That's, that's not a, I believe in you. That is a, I believe in who you are and what you said and I believe in what you did and I am yours and I will pick up my cross and follow you. That's what it means. And so today we're gonna take communion together. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper. We're gonna remember that he gave his life for us that we would surrender our life to him. That he made it possible. He said, you don't have to do one thing you don't have to do one thing. I love you. I'm taking care of your sin. I'm wiping it away. I'm knocking it out. I'm defeating death. I will be buried on your behalf and I will rise so that you can rise with me. When you give your life to me, you are in the new covenant that can never be broken. For it is on my blood that this covenant is made. It is on my life that this covenant is made. And so on the night that he was betrayed, yes, and sent to a beating and ultimately to a cross to pick up his cross on our behalf, he took the cup filled with wine, took the bread, and as they took the bread, they ate it. And he said, this is my body. And then they drank of the cup and he said, this is my blood. This is what unifies us. And it'll never be broken. Oh, I wonder how many times Peter must have told that story to John Mark. It can never be broken. John Mark, it can't be broken. No matter how many failures you come with, it can't be broken. No matter how many times you mess up, it can't be broken. Keep coming back to the cross, John Mark, because grace is there. Because grace is there. Because it's driven by his love. And we're going to open up the book of Mark, and we're going to see the beautiful works, the beautiful words of Jesus. And we're going to be reminded daily. We're going to be reminded moment by moment to pick up our cross, to leave this life behind and say, Lord, I'm yours, and to live for him. This is your time. There's going to be two songs. Sing them. Go to the altar. Grab the communion. Remember what he did. Confess your following of him. Confess your life to him again, new and afresh. If you need to go in other parts of the room and pray, if you need to come back, pray. Take it when you're ready. Literally take the whole thing when you're ready. This is your time to be with God. We're about to start a most intimate story of Jesus. May you have an intimate moment with him yourself, remembering what he did for you, remembering his love that doesn't quit and his grace that is unending. So Father, thank you for your bread. Thank you for your cup that it represents your body and your blood shed and poured out for us, that we would forever be united with you. We love you, Father. In your name we pray.